And our speaker, our guest today is Sean Derns. Sean is a senior research analyst for CAMERA, the 65,000 member Boston-based Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis. Sean's writings and research have appeared in the Washington Times, Newsweek, the Washington Free Beacon, National Review, and elsewhere. And he has been cited on Fox News and in the Wall Street Journal. Sean has appeared on Newsmax, News Nation, and other media outlets to discuss the Middle East and related issues, including terrorism and anti-Semitism. He has a master's degree in diplomatic history from the London School of Economics. Now, before Sean begins his presentation, and we will have questions as we always do uh, afterwards, a short, very short commercial for the Jewish Policy Center. Uh, if you're new to our webinars, I'll tell you that we are a slightly right of center policy organization. And we look at foreign policy, domestic as well, national security, defense, and U.S.-Israel relations, U.S.-Middle East policy. And we have a wide-ranging group of contributors to our website, jewishpolicycenter.org, to our quarterly magazine, In Focus, and to our frequent updates on the website under Insight. So if you take a look and like what we do, of course, urge you to make a consider making a donation at our secure site. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean. And then uh, after Sean makes his formal remarks, we will go to question and answers. Sean, the floor is yours. Thank you, Eric, for the kind introduction. And a special thanks to the Jewish Policy Center, uh, which has done such important work, including on the subject that I'll be speaking about today. JPC has truly been ahead of the curve when discussing the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, and the pernicious role that it plays in perpetuating the Israel-Islamist conflict. So why are we talking about UNRWA today? On January 26, 2024, the agency's commissioner general acknowledged that Israeli authorities had provided it with, quote, information about the alleged involvement of several UNRWA employees in the horrific attacks on Israel on October 7th. He further stated that he had, quote, immediately terminated the contracts of these staff members. UNRWA has promised to investigate, a promise that, as we'll discuss, is positively laughable. I think it's important to speak clearly and forthrightly about this issue. Eight decades after the end of World War II, employees of the United Nations are murdering Jews, and what is more, American taxpayers are paying for it. That's your headline, and that should be the headline in every newspaper in the United States, front and center and above the fold. It's a scandal. I should note, too, that this revelation came the day before International Holocaust Remembrance Day. International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the United Nations. These were institutions and methods created in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust. They were created to help build a better world and to give meaning to the phrase, never again. Now, post-October 7th, we have a good idea of how all that is going. As the Jewish Policy Center's Eric Rosenman observed in one of his excellent books, when they said never again, we thought they meant it. 
Instead, what we're seeing is that instead of thwarting another Jewish genocide, UN employees are helping to carry it out. And they're enabled in this action by a complicit press, something that we here at the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis actively work to highlight, as well as policymakers who should know better. Indeed, four days after UNRWA's admission, the Washington Post ran a column by columnist Josh Rogan, normally one of the more sane and level-headed individuals at a paper that is far from its glory days. Mr. Rogan blasted the UN employees who took part in the massacre, stating that they should receive swift justice. He noted that 12 employees in Gaza allegedly participated in the attack, noting that, quote, if found guilty, they deserve no sanctuary and no mercy. He also said that UNRWA has big questions to answer about this and other instances of some of its 13,000 employees seeming support for violence against Israelis, end quote. Importantly, he did not elaborate on what these some other instances were. I'll be detailing them shortly in a way that the Washington Post, with hundreds of employees, millions of dollars, and foreign bureaus can't, or more accurately, won't. The Post proceeded to decry proposed funding cuts to UNRWA, calling them, quote, cruel, and warning that they will have ripple effects that will make solving all of the Middle East problems more difficult. Yet it is UNRWA that is cruel, and far from being part of the solution, UNRWA is part of the problem. One can even argue that it is at the epicenter, feeding the twin beasts of anti-Semitism and rejectionism that are at the beating heart of the conflict. And despite attempts by the Washington Post and others to portray the recent news as merely, quote, a few bad apples, UNRWA shares Hamas's objective, the destruction of the Jewish state. Intelligence reports shared with the Wall Street Journal and published more than a day before Rogan's Washington Post column went to print revealed extensive UNRWA support for the October 7th massacre. No fewer than a dozen UNRWA employees had connections to the October 7th massacre, and at least six took part in the attack. At least two others helped kidnap Israelis, and others were tracked to sites where Jewish civilians were shot and killed. The journal also noted that other UNRWA employees coordinated logistics for the assault, including procuring weapons. UNRWA vehicles and facilities were also purportedly used. Intelligence estimates shared with the Wall Street Journal indicate that no fewer than 1,200 of its employees in Gaza have links to Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and about half have close relatives who belong to these U.S.-designated terrorist groups. The Washington Post and others who defend UNRWA should be asked, how many U.N. employees aiding and abetting the systemic slaughter of Jews is too many before U.S. taxpayers quit footing the bill? I like my tax dollars to go to causes besides murdering Jews, perhaps some old-fashioned. But it's important to understand that the October 7th massacre and UNRWA's involvement in it are not surprising. Founded in 1950 in the wake of Israel's War of Independence, UNRWA has spent decades fomenting terrorism and anti-Semitism. Indeed, its very mission is nothing less than perpetuating the Arab-Israeli conflict. Allow me to explain. UNRWA's core mission is the destruction of the Jewish state. While all of the world's other refugee populations fall under the jurisdiction of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNRWA is the only entity devoted to a sole category, Palestinian refugees. And uniquely, UNRWA's definition of what constitutes a refugee includes people who are generations removed from the 1948 war, people who are citizens of new states, and people who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, places that Palestinians themselves claim as part of a future Palestinian state. And in contrast to the UN High Commissioner on Refugees, UNRWA's definition of refugee is not aid-dependent. The UNHCR seeks to settle refugees. That is its mission. By contrast, UNRWA seeks to perpetuate the Israel-Islamic conflict.
not only by actively aiding Hamas, but by maintaining the fiction that one can be a millionaire American-born model like Gigi Hadid and be a refugee. According to UNRWA's doctrine, these refugees will maintain their refugee status until they settle in Israel, a land that many weren't even born in. The sole purpose of this doctrine is the destruction of the Jewish state. By promoting this narrative, the agency ensures that the conflict can end only with the destruction of Israel. But this too is precisely what the agency's textbooks and educators teach. UNRWA seeks to perpetuate the conflict for generations. Far from ending suffering, the Relief and Works Agency creates it. And UNRWA perpetuates the conflict in other key ways. In addition to being massively corrupt, pound for pound, UNRWA receives more money than UNHCR, despite dealing with far fewer refugees. The organization is openly anti-Semitic. As a recent UN Watch report revealed, anti-Semitism is rife among UNRWA teachers and staff. A January 11, 2024 UN Watch expose of a telegram group of 3,000 of the agency's teachers found celebrations of terrorist attacks and anti-Jewish violence. Employees of the UN agency even cheered the October 7th massacre. As the executive director of UN Watch pointed out, in more than 249,000 messages, replete with celebrations of Hamas terrorism, not one UNRWA teacher reject objected. UNRWA is an incubator for Jew hatred, sowing the seeds that groups like Hamas reap. Indeed, entire books such as 2020's The War of Return by Anat Wilf and Adi Schwartz have extensively and irrefutably profiled the pernicious role that UNRWA plays. Organizations like JPC, CAMERA, UN Watch, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Memory, and others have extensively documented UNRWA's terror ties. And evidence of those connections have been part of the public domain for a long time. A 2015 internal investigation found that schools run by UNRWA were used by Hamas to hide weapons and launch attacks during the 2014 Israel-Hamas war. Video evidence confirmed it. A 2014 report by the Center for Near East Policy Research found that Hamas and Islamic Jihad, quote, control the UNRWA stations in Gaza. And in 2012, UNRWA in Gaza elected Hamas to all 11 seats in UNRWA's teachers' union. Indeed, UNRWA schools were fostering terror and rejectionism even before Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood derivative, emerged on the scene. Several of the Palestinian terrorists in the 1970s, those who carried out the Laud Massacre, the Coastal Road Massacre, and the Munich Massacre, were UNRWA alum. Many went on to graduate from UNRWA schools to murdering Jews, enshrining what they were taught in blood. Finally, I should note that UNRWA is a boondoggle. From the time of its creation until 2018, when the Trump administration cut off UNRWA funding, an estimated $6 billion of American taxpayer money has gone to UNRWA. And in the three years since the Biden administration turned the faucet back on, nearly a billion dollars has been sent to the organization. Now, finally, and belatedly, American taxpayers and others are asking what they're receiving for their largesse. The United Kingdom, Germany, and Netherlands have suspended funds. Others, including Spain, Ireland, and Norway, have failed to do so and are seemingly unbothered by the mass murder of Jews. Yet reports of the Biden cutoff funding are misleading. UNRWA USA is still a 501c3, capable of receiving tax-deductible donations. And more importantly, UNRWA continues to receive copious funds from the United States. As Victoria Coates and Brent Sadler of the Heritage Foundation revealed yesterday, 99.8% of U.S. funding to UNRWA has already been delivered, leaving only 0.2% to be paused by the Biden administration. 
Yet unrented stenographers in the press really want that 0.2%. They would like you to keep funding the murder of Jews. And I find that deeply objectionable. Thank you. Sean, thanks very much for that detailed, scathing, and absolutely timely analysis. I expect to see it in the very near future uh, published somewhere in a, in a foreign policy magazine, no doubt. Um, but I want to pursue a couple questions that you that you did not actually, uh, well, you touched on, but did not necessarily go into detail. So let's back up a little bit historically. This will be two-parter. The UNRWA was established, what you said, 1950. Um, and as I recall, it was explicitly meant to be temporary to provide either resettlement or repatriation. Repatriation in the, in the circumstance that those returning to their original or the homes in what be, had become Israel were prepared to live peaceably. So that condition was never met and by, it was never met by the Palestinian Arab refugees, how did this temporary agency then abandon the other part of its mission, which was resettlement and rehabilitation in the lands that the refugees then found themselves in? That's a great question, Eric, and I think that gets to the, the, the core of the problem. Um, there's Estimates vary, but there was an estimated 600,000 uh, Arab refugees from the conflict. Um, and right now, according to UNRWA, there was 5.9 million refugees, uh, thanks to their curious definition of what constitutes a refugee. So what what really happened? Uh, you're correct to note that at, the, that at the very beginning, UNRWA was not necessarily pernicious, but pretty quickly uh, it was realized that they could weaponize, weaponize refugees and use them against the Jewish state. And uh, the UN, of course, has been an incubator for anti-Semitism itself for decades, and this is more or less what unfolded um, in the subsequent years. All right. Uh, and the second part of my historical query is, before Hamas got its uh, claws into UNRWA, it wasn't as if UNRWA was a benign or a benevolent uh, relief agency. It was then a boondoggle jobs program and propagandists for the PLO, uh, as I recall. Can you give us a little detail on that? That's that's exactly right. UNRWA was, UNRWA was a problem was at the core of previous uh, conflicts, whether it was the PLO in Lebanon. Uh, as, I, as I noted, they also, many of the, the terrorists who perpetrated uh, attacks in the 1970s and 80s were UNRWA alum. So it, it's long been a problem. What happened in 2006, uh, shortly after Hamas took power in the Gaza Strip, is UNRWA became a veritable partner of Hamas in terms of governing. Hamas devoted all of its energies, just as it does today, to uh, murdering Jews. Uh, and to the extent that there was any bit of time to or, or efforts uh, expended to feed and take care of the population in Gaza, it was not really done by Hamas so much as it was done by UNRWA. And as what we've seen is uh, they've kind of they become intertwined. Uh, there is no state building in Gaza. It's it's uh, constructed. What they've constructed is a state to murder Jews, and UNRWA is complicit in that. Okay, thanks. That's 
this gives our our viewers, our participants, a uh, necessary background, I think. Bringing it up to the present, and you touched on this, but I want to get the figures out here. So the UN High Commissioner for Refugees handles all the other refugees in the world, none of whom get to inherit refugee status, like the Palestinian Arabs, as you pointed out. So there's 60 million or more non-Palestinian refugees that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees handles with, I believe, an $8 billion budget and 19,000 staffers worldwide. UNRWA, by contrast, it claims, as you said, 5.9 million. But actuarially, if you're an insurance agent and you look at 600,000, more or less, Palestinian Arab refugees from 1948, then there can't be more than about 50,000, maybe probably less, fewer, still alive. So to handle that tiny number, UNRWA has a one point, what is it, $1.7 million budget annually and, and 30,000 staff members, 12 or 13,000 in Gaza, the rest in the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. So it's a boondoggle on a boondoggle, as well as being pernicious. What I wonder is, since the press hasn't gone to town on this, the United States is the biggest contributor. This past year, $344 million. Uh, Germany is second, $202 million, and the European Union third, $114 million. Now, I'm not positive about Germany, but I know that the EU and the United States declare Hamas a terrorist, designate Hamas a terrorist organization. Why, if not the press, why have not members of Congress, either both parties, made this an issue? Great question. And I think a lot of that does actually come back to the press. Uh, the press here is absolutely complicit in this. In 2018, for example, when the Trump administration decided to stop funding UNRWA, uh, the press, including Washington Post, outlets like Foreign Policy Magazine and others, uh, portray this as an isolationist impulse on the part of the Trump administration. And they failed to note UNRWA's long history, already in abundance then, of supporting terror. So uh, without the press working to inform the public and without the public being properly outraged, uh, that's how we got what happened on October 7th, where you have UN employees actively murdering and taking part in the largest massacre of Jewish civilians since the Holocaust. So I think that that's, that's a huge part of the problem. There are certainly members of Congress uh, who have been leading the charge on this. Uh, just the other week, uh, FTD's Richard Goldberg and Hillel Neuer of UN Watch, among others, testified before Congress on UNRWA. And there are members who are calling for UNRWA to be held accountable. But as what we've seen with the press and unfortunately too many uh, policymakers is there isn't a will to do so. And even here, like, you know, as I noted, this is a pause of 0.2%. Uh, and there's an uproar over that in the pages of the Washington Post. And to me, it is just unreal. And, and I'm, I'm, Eric, you know me, I'm, I'm a pretty cynical person, uh, but it is, I'm still nonetheless astounded 
that this is not front page above the fold news. American tax dollars are going to the UN, an organization ostensibly meant to support world peace and all these Wilsonian notions, and they're going to murder Jews. That's the that's the flat out blunt brutal truth of it, and I don't see how that is not front page news. It should be, and it's damning that it's not. Sean, I just want to say that uh, I heard a generation ago a uh, Washington foreign policy maven say that cynicism. Um, was the cheapest form of intellectual activity. I would not ever say you were a cynic. You are a, you are a thoroughgoing skeptic. And that is the source of your detailed uh, analysis on a number of subjects, including this skepticism, uh, not cynicism. You mentioned the Trump administration cutting off funding and the Biden administration resuming it for UNRWA. In, when we were getting ready for this uh, webinar, I, I did a little research. And when the Trump administration cut off funding for UNRWA in 2018, it said that UNRWA's business model, quote unquote, was simply unsustainable. And it was based on, quote, UNRWA's endlessly and exponentially expanding community of entitled beneficiaries. You've spoken to this. Given that indictment, what justification did the Biden administration make on resuming funding for UNRWA, which I think they did very early in the first few days? They did, indeed. Uh, this was one of the early moves that they made, just like delisting the Houthis from uh, the list of foreign terrorist organizations and all sorts of other things that we're now seeing. Uh, you know, we're now dealing with the consequences of that. The justification is actually quite ironic, which is that they argue, and UNRWA's supporters argue, that UNRWA is key to building a Palestinian state and key to Palestinian sovereignty and the national national aspirations, supposedly, of Palestinian people. Of course, I say that's ironic because they they simultaneously will argue that the Biden administration the Biden administration will argue that they're against terrorism and they do not want uh, you know the construction of another terrorist state. But that's precisely what UNRWA does. You can't be supportive of peace in the Middle East or a two-state solution, which we are banned about, a sustainable two-state solution, and simultaneously support organizations like UNRWA, which have, which have institutionalized anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish violence. So uh, it is conflicting, and their logic is at a dead end. Dead end logic. You know, maybe I'm the cynic. Uh, I've been in Washington now longer than you, although I actually came from a uh, less uh, overheated place, Ohio, and dead ends don't seem to stop policy makers and policy analysts of, of many stripes. Uh, an aside, which I hope is in an irrelevancy, we had for two generations a discipline and a group of people known as Sovietologists almost none of whom understood the weaknesses of the Soviet Union or, or forecast its imminent collapse. Now we have, a, we have a school of thought which seems to be impervious to facts that defines Palestinian aspirations for them, claiming that they, would, that they want a two-state solution with the West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, Palestinian state when the Palestinians continually reject that. And this brings us back to UNRWA. 
a 2020 study of UNRWA textbooks done by the European Union found, quote, they suggest a conscious perpetuation of anti-Jewish prejudice, especially when embedded in the current political context. In other words, the context being the desire to destroy Israel and the UNRWA text being uh, uh, a means of indoctrinating this belief. Have any of the big donors to UNRWA, including the United States, ever said, you know, we have to clean the textbook up. You can't go on receiving our funding while you're indoctrinating the next generation. Has that anybody ever made a stab at that? And if not, why not? Not really. So um, actually under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, she highlighted uh, some of this pernicious material that was uh, being used in honor textbooks and so on. And, but in terms of actual action, no, not really. Uh, it's just been more hoping that th things will somehow magically change. No real push for the reform. And this is also analogous to what we see with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, there's been all this talk about the Palestinian Authority and UNRWA being key to rebuilding Gaza and reconstituting Gaza. In fact, just the day before these revelations about UNRWA employees taking part in the October 7th massacre, a State Department spokesperson called for UNRWA to play a, quote, key role in rebuilding Gaza. So there's been no effort to reform these institutions that are actually perpetuating the conflict. And so then around and around we go. And this is just, uh, you know, it's there's no real effort to change any of this uh, writ large. Certain, to be sure, there are certainly members in Congress that are working to do so. But when it comes to uh, enough will to sustain, I mean, as I said, 0.2% being paused, that's that's pathetic. I'm going to go to some uh, questions now that, have, that people are, are uh, calling and typing in here. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of them uh, so we don't get run out of time. And then they get on the table. So uh, one of our uh, participants asks, why was UNRWA established in the first place instead of using the High Commission for Refugees, UN High Commissioner for Refugees? So keep, we're going to keep a running list here. So that's one. Why was UNRWA established separately? Uh, another is UNRWA tied in some way to Qatar, which we know plays a double game uh, trying to be uh, interlocutor diplomatically for the United States while uh, hosting Hamas leaders. Let's go with those two right now. Perfect. Uh, so Qatar's role uh, in UNRWA, certainly Qatar is, is another one of these major players in the Middle East, uh, just like the Palestinian Authority, just like UNRWA, which is at the center of the problem. They're part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. Their, their own personal contributions to UNRWA are actually rather meager compared to other nations. But in terms of fomenting the same sort of ideology, uh, you know, the cutter has been very, very active in influencing media outlets uh, and also in influencing uh, education here in the United States and elsewhere, giving it an anti-Zionist and often anti-Semitic bent. So they're part of the problem, too. Uh, and I think they're very happy to have UNRWA keep on teaching what things that they agree with and happy to not have to pay for it. So it's it's it's, it's ironic as far as that goes. And as far as UNRWA in a separate 
UN agency being established. I'm not sure exactly why that unfolded. I can tell you that it pretty quickly, you know, became, it took on a life of its own. And it was clearly used by Arab states, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and others to keep the conflict alive. And it did that in the early decades and it gave support to the PLO, PFLP, and other terrorist groups that were very active in the 1970s and 60s. And now it has again morphed um, to supporting Hamas in Gaza. I want, I want to unmute myself first. The second thing is I want to ask, Israel has played, if not an ambiguous, then sometimes a self-contradictory role here. Uh, I'd like you to go into that if you can. On the one hand, especially since October 7, Israel, the Israeli government has been very explicit in pointing out the UNRWA's not just shortcomings, but its its malign activities. On the other hand, we, you hear periodically, and including recently, from Israeli officials, well, we can't get rid of UNRWA now because we need somebody to help bring the, the necessary aid in. Where, is Israel on the horns of a dilemma here? I think is what you see there. First, I, I think one thing that a lot of people, certainly in the American press, fail to realize is that the Israeli security establishment, I'm speaking in broad general terms here, there's certainly major exceptions to this, um, they're risk averse. Uh, you know, if you, if you were to read the Washington Post, you'd think that the IDF uh, wants to conquer Gaza and, uh, you know, is some sort of, uh, quote, Zionist entity that's uh, hell-bent on uh, restructuring the Middle East. None of that's true, of course. Uh, the IDF generally, uh, many and the Israeli security establishment are actually pretty risk-averse. And they see, they would, they do not want to rock the boat. And this is the same sort of attitude that actually I think you see uh, in particular with the American State Department. Uh, just keep things going the way they are. Don't want to rock the boat. UNRWA gives some aid, which is used to absolute, to be absolutely uh, clear uh, to civilians, food, and so on. Now, of course, much of that is distributed. In fact, almost all of it is distributed by Hamas. Uh, there are no real methods, just like UNRWA doesn't vet any of its employees, for example. So I think it's more about not upsetting the status quo and this sort of thinking that has been prevalent uh, in, in certain echelons of, of the Israeli security establishment, which is you know, uh, just keep mowing the grass. We're going to, and uh, Shoshana Bryan, JPC's head, has written very eloquently, uh, you know, you cannot manage terrorists. It's a fiction to think that you can. And I think that this is the sort of mindset that was unfortunately became all too common amongst uh, many of the Israeli security establishment. Don't rock the boat. The boat's rocking anyways. Thanks. I, that that clears up something for me, and I hope it clears it up for uh, for our participants. Uh, I read quite recently, in the last two or three days, that uh, Israeli intelligence believes that 60% of the aid that's being allowed in now, basic food, medicine, etc., cetera, uh, is being taken immediately by Hamas. So in the midst of a war, Israel is being pressured by its allies, and certainly by its major ally, the United States, to let UNRWA keep functioning and let aid keep flowing, which is another way of saying keep supplying the enemy you're trying to defeat. Is there a means of, is there a way around this conundrum? Uh, 
for Israel to just close the uh, crossings and say, okay, that's it. No more trucks, no more aid until we finish with Hamas. Uh, we just will, of course, cause an even greater outcry than we hear already. Is there an alternative? Well, I do think that there is in some respects, you know, uh, UNHCR, there are other organizations that that take care of refugees and supply aid throughout uh, throughout the world. Uh, and they can certainly do this. Uh, and their employees probably won't go off uh, murdering Jews in mass. So I, I think that that should be the barometer. You know, <laughs> if if other refugees can be taken care of and given aid and other wars and other conflict zones, I see no reason why that can be different in this particular instance. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, the United States did not win World War II by giving copious amounts of uh, aid to the Imperial Japanese or the Nazis. Uh, the, one of the main strategies in war is cutting off your enemy's supply lines. And there's reasons for that. Uh, to the extent that aid isn't getting to the Palestinian people, that that lies, the fault for that is with Hamas and those who enable it, like UNRWA. Thanks. Uh, JPC, and I've neglected to say this in my introductory brief commercial, uh, and one of our positions is we're, we are essentially free market capitalists. This brings me back to unrun the Gaza Strip. Why is a place that after Oslo, you heard these rosy projections of how the Palestinians would might be able to turn it into a Singapore on the Mediterranean. Why is the Gaza Strip, why was it before October 7, such an aid dependent place? Was not was the local economy that either depressed or somehow artificially constricted that it couldn't support itself? Because if it were, how is it possible to have had such a population explosion? Uh, I'll throw out one more figure. In 1967, when Israel took the Gaza Strip from Egyptian occupation, the population was around 400,000. And today it's estimated at 2.1, 2.2 million. So it's had effectively a population explosion without an economy. This doesn't make sense. Can you clarify this? Yes. Uh, so this is just shows you the, I think what you, what you really see here is a lot of countries and a lot of entities putting a lot of money into Gaza. So Hamas can keep on murdering Jews, keep on trying to murder Jews. So all this aid goes in, you get things like uh, major cement companies and all of it's repurposed by Hamas. Uh, there's no, this, the stat that you just highlighted about uh, the burgeoning population in Gaza, I think, goes to show that allegations that Israel is perpetrating a genocide is just, you know, that, and I, don't, I wouldn't say it's laughable because, of course, it's actually anti-Semitic to uh, accuse uh, people that have been the victim of one of the worst genocides in history uh, to be perpetrating one. Uh, in Gaza, and it's clearly not true. There's a great account that I would recommend everyone uh, to follow, a great social media account. It's called the Gaza You Don't See. And they were highlighting things that, in fact, you know, Gaza did have a, a I don't want to say it was a decent economy because it was led by a kleptocratic terrorist group, but the average quality of life for many Gazans was actually quite good. It was not, in fact, an open-air prison, as Hamas apologists and the Washington Post, but I repeat myself, often uh, make it make it seem to be. And now you see all these people say, oh, look, you, you, the IDF is destroying Gaza. Well, wait a second. I just I, last year you were saying that this was an open air prison. 
So which is it? And of course, the answer is, it is whatever it takes to blame and castigate the Jewish state. So if that means last year it was an open-air prison where people are just living in slums, well, now this year, now the IDF is actually occupying Gaza. Um, now, well, now it's they're looking back as, you know, how it come days and things were so great in Gaza last year. It's absurd. And it just shows you uh, the fundamental dishonesty at the, at the heart of uh, all these individuals and entities. Sean, uh, normally we go uh, with our JPC webinars about 45 or 50 minutes. I know from our talking beforehand today that you have been doing a magnificent job while suffering from strep throat. So we're going to cut it down a little bit. Uh, uh, so we'll wrap it up in the next uh, five to 10 minutes. And I want to get two more questions that people have, uh, have sent us. Now I'll shorten them. But one uh, asks, and we've touched on it, but let, I'll phrase it slightly differently. What is the political or policy motivation for the Biden administration to continue to prop up UNRWA if there's a recognition that they're actually not part of a solution? Yet, some, for some other reason, we're going to keep propping them up. I'd like to know what you think that other reason might be. And one, another one of our participants notes that uh, there have been videos of UNRWA facilities found and uh, UNRWA and European Union-sponsored kindergarten rigged with explosives. Now, uh, this goes into what my next question, so we'll just wrap it up. We'll put them all in one, uh, we'll put them all together. Ninth, in 2014, the parking lot at UNRWA's Gaza Strip headquarters began to collapse. Everybody knew, according to an, a former UNRWA employee, why? Because Hamas was digging a tunnel under the parking lot. No one talked about the collapse. No one investigated the collapse. No one said anything about the collapse. It cannot be that the Western intelligence, U.S. intelligence, didn't know about this at the time. Who benefits? Why the long-standing cover-up uh, of all this information about UNRWA's malign activities? And let me throw out an answer, and you can bat it down. If the Western European countries with large Muslim pop, immigrant populations were to take the necessary action toward UNRWA, they would face difficulty at home. Were the United States to cut off UNRWA permanently, it would pose a political problem for some, for some people and some candidates in the United States. Is that the reason or am I missing something? I think that is probably the most charitable explanation. Uh, and I think there's certainly some truth to it, uh, a great deal of truth. I think less charitably, one could argue that this is all part of war, the war to destroy Israel, to destroy the Jewish state. And that some entities can be less honest about it than others. Hamas is quite open 
about what it aims to achieve. And so for that matter is UNRWA. If you look at their textbooks and you look at their teachers, uh, those who support Hamas, support UNRWA, or at least want to continue with the prevailing status quo and continue to fund failure are being a little bit less open about their objective, but it remains the same, uh, which is the destruction of Israel. And that's the less charitable answer. I don't think it's true for everyone, but I think it's certainly true for for many individuals. You can't, you can't, it's you can't sit there and say that you want to destroy Israel and the Jewish state. I mean, you can if you're, you know, an academic working on an American college campus or running the editorial board of the Washington Post. But for everyone else, it can be a little bit more difficult. So just continue with the prevailing, failing status quo. Don't rock the boat. Continue to fund people that want to murder Jews, and hope no one notices. And that's what I think we've had. You know, our policy in the Middle East, certainly our policy regarding UNRWA, is one of funding failure. It is a failed policy, and it's been failing for decades. And entities like JPC, FTD, Camera, and others have been highlighting this. And uh, now it is absolutely undeniable. It's been undeniable. So will things change? It depends on will. The will of the, uh, do Americans want to keep funding uh, an entity that wants to murder Jews, that does murder Jews. Sean, Shoshana likes to wrap up these uh, webinars with something something positive from our, from our guests. And because our topics usually are <laughs> fraught with difficulties, uh, that can be, that can be rough. You have thoroughly, uh, you have been utterly honest and plain spoken here, which has caused me and no doubt some of our participants to be suffering right now from a feeling of a little bit of depression on the subject and its seeming intractability. Yes. I'm going to offer you a chance to uplift us at least a little. It sounds to me, from what you've highlighted today, that UNRWA is unreformable, and there's not much political interest outside, real interest, genuine, other than lip service, outside of Israel and the United States to do that. Since UNRWA is an agency of the UN, the, the core of the difficulty and perhaps the lever for any improvement lies with the UN, in the UN in toto. In other words, maybe the United States needs to brandish a big stick in terms of overall American funding for the United Nations, which is disproportionately large, and that's understating it, to force I won't say reform, replacement of UNRWA. So is that at all logical first and possible second? I think it's both. That's Here I am being all optimistic. It is, <laughs> it is both logical and it is possible. The United States financially wields a big stick. And I think what we've seen here is there's a number of things, whether it's UNRWA, for that matter, the Lebanese Armed Forces, which collude with Hezbollah, that American taxpayers are funding. And to what end? And I think there's going to be increasingly people asking that question. They're certainly asking it now. And I, I think that's going to be part of a trend. So I would say that that's something positive. 
And beyond that, I would also say that it is actually what we've seen happen with, say, the prevailing mindset uh, amongst, again, the Israeli security establishment, that's broad general term. No longer, I think, the belief that you could manage these terrorist groups, you could show up and mow the lawn, that I think is coming to an end. And so that's something tremendously positive. Uh, very tragically, on October 7th, we've seen that some of the policies that were kind of taken for granted uh, in Israel are now, they're no longer accepted, or certainly they have a lot less support. So I think that that is a huge positive. Uh, Israel, you know, is now having to contend with some realities, horrible realities. Uh, and I think many in the United States are also aware of that. Now, whether that will extend to policymakers and the press is, an, is another matter. But certainly in, in Israel itself, I see tremendous reason to be positive. And I'd, I'd also add that the Israeli Defense Forces are doing a, a tremendous job uh, in Gaza, you know, by my uh, by my sights anyways. I think that they've made tremendous progress against Hamas and, and they've managed to reveal things like all these UNRWA schools and facilities that are just absolutely, they're Hamas facilities. And they're funded by American taxpayers, and that needs to end. Sean Derns, I want to thank you on behalf of all our participants today for an absolutely enlightening, detailed, timely, and essentially call to arms. I appreciate it very much. Sean, thanks, and feel better. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much.